You are listening to East of Eden, a sermon series taught in the summer of 2008 at Hokessin Baptist Church. Today's sermon is entitled, Living East of Eden. And now, Pastor John Boulay. Well, this week is the last message in a series of messages we've called East of Eden, where we've kind of followed Genesis 4 through 11 to its uh, logical conclusion. That conclusion is this morning. So next week when you come in, we'll be starting a new series entitled Perfecting Ourselves to Death. Uh, and we'll, we'll go on from there. So if you are a visitor, I encourage you to join with us in this next season. And I hope that it helps you understand where we're focusing our attention here in the month of August. But for today, we're in Genesis. And as I was preparing for this message... Uh, I, I also moonlight as a homeschool science teacher. Yep, no pay, but uh, I, I do give my, my voice science. Andrea does the rest. So I'm doing science with Timothy the other night, and the book or the page of the book that we're covering is uh, the exploration of space. It's this big, you know, fold out with the timelines and pictures of Sputnik and Gemini. And all these things that if you're younger than, I don't know, younger than 15 doesn't mean that much. I mean, when I say Sputnik and you're in your 50s, you know what I'm talking about. When I say Sputnik and you're in your fives, you could care less. <laughs> you know? And so I'm looking at this, this, and I'm trying to explain why when the Soviets would put Sputnik in space, it would matter. And why when Yuri Gagarin orbited, it mattered. And why... All of these things, Gemini was significant, and Apollo was significant. And I found myself quickly not talking about the exploration of space and talking more about the space race. I'm like, ah, that'll work. I'll explain the space race. I'm echoing a little. And as I'm talking about the space race, and it sounds like I'm talking from space, even right now, right? Um, I end up talking more and more and more, and I find myself deeper and deeper and deeper speaking about the Cold War. Because the space race doesn't make sense if you don't understand the Cold War. And so there's my eight-year-old hearing about nuclear annihilation, <laughs> atomic bombs. You know, I'm, I'm about to go rent uh, uh, Red Dawn. I, I mean, just kidding, just kidding. You guys can relax. But it meant, nonetheless, there's this whole a spirit of the Cold War that's involved in even trying to understand why we would go to the moon. Because if going to the moon were really that important, don't you think we'd still be going? Why did we stop going? We stopped going because we won the race. The race was won. The finish line was crossed. There's really nothing on the moon that we need to see. I mean, it's, it's just cheese, right? And so I'm explaining this Cold War, and I'm talking to my son, and it, it echoed... Back to the lesson today, because today we're going to talk about a story in Scripture that deals with mankind's desire for security. It deals with mankind's desire to produce security by themselves apart from God. It deals with our desire to control the parameters in our life, and that's kind of what I felt myself talking about with the space race. So here's an example. Here's an example that was relevant to me this past year, and I'm going to start talking airplane talk here. Okay, here we go. In the 1960s, the United States Air Force developed an experimental bomber called the XB-70 Valkyrie. And the XB-70 Valkyrie was the highest and fastest and, and coolest bomber that had ever been built. It looks a little bit like the Concorde, if you don't know what that looks like. 
But at any rate, two were built. One was destroyed in a test flight, and one is in a museum to this day. But the XB-70 Valkyrie pro produced something in the Cold War that, that had not existed for a while, and that was asymmetry between the United States and Russia. Because the Valkyrie could fly high enough and fast enough that it could literally fly over the Soviet Union, drop bombs at will, immune from any response from the Soviet Union. They had no missile that could get to it. They had no aircraft that could fly fast enough. They had no radar powerful enough to reach out and touch the XB-70. It was immune. It dominated the air. And so you can imagine how the Soviets would feel when we unleashed the XB-70. Now, it doesn't matter that we canceled the program. Right? The secret was out. The secret's out that the United States knows how to get on over the Soviet Union and do whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want. And so the Soviet Union started pouring effort and energy and money and research into creating the greatest fighter of all time. It was going to be the fastest airplane that could fly higher than anything, that would have a radar more powerful than anything ever imagined, with missiles that could go farther and make bigger explosions. And then they would own their skies again. And the, and the product of this effort was known as the MiG-25 Foxbat. It's, it's a sight of beauty. <sighs> it was so fast, it could go so high, the radar was so powerful that on the ground, if you turn the radar on, it would kill an animal 100 feet away, just the emitted power from the radar cone. It was absolutely death-defying. And when they unleashed it on the Americans, they did it with this big show from Egypt to Greece. They launched a MiG-25 Foxbat out of Egypt and went right across the Mediterranean at Mach 3.2, right at sea level, and it landed in Greece. And we were shocked. The United States was shocked, particularly the U.S. military, because now the field wasn't even. We were at the disadvantage. Now there was nothing we could bring to Russia that had any hope of survival. We could not fly over the Soviet Union without getting a face full of the Foxbat, and we knew it. Little did we know when the, when the Foxbat landed in Greece, both motors had melted completely, right? But it didn't matter. And in fact, the Soviets don't care about melting motors. They'll launch one mission, melt all their motors, but shoot a bunch of bombers down. So it still meant something to us. Egypt did the same thing to Israel. Egypt launched their Foxbat. They flew all around Israel. While Israel tried to shoot it down, tried all their tricks, nothing happened. The Foxbat went back and landed in Egypt, and Egypt had demonstrated to Israel who is in charge. There's a guy named Victor Blanco. He was living in Siberia at the time. He was a MiG-25 pilot. And he became disenfranchised with the communist way of life, with the communist ideology, became curious what democracy looked like, believed that the Russians were telling him a lie. So one day in his flight with the MiG-25, he kept going east, landed in Japan, gave the MiG-25 to the United States, the, uh, the United States exploited it, flew it, tested it, studied it, researched it, did everything. We took it apart, we rebuilt it, we took it apart again, rebuilt it again. Once we knew everything there was to know about the MiG-25, we packed it up in little boxes and mailed it back to the Soviet Union. <laughs> and then we endeavored to build the greatest air superiority fighter that lasted for three decades, known as the F-15 Eagle, which looks strikingly like the MiG-25 Foxbat. Because there is this concern for security, right? Countries, superpowers, was just a modern word for empire, they promise us things. They promise us things that 
it promises safety and security and icons and symbols like MiG-25s, like uh, different things, landing on the moon, putting a flag on the moon. They tell us you're okay. They tell us you're safe. They tell us that mankind, within the works of our hands, has the ability to produce our own security and our own safety. And that's what the MiG-25 was. It was an empire airplane. Any aspiring communist-friendly country bought MiG-25s. If you wanted to be an empire, you had a MiG-25. Egypt had them. Iraq had them. They had a bunch of them. And they boasted them. It's on their artwork. I've walked around their old ops buildings as the newest conqueror of the land. And they're on the walls. There's images and icons and paintings of MiG-25s flying west over Israel and dropping bombs because it was, it was the meaning of their security. I guess until 2003, when we invaded Iraq, not a single MiG-25 rolled a wheel. They didn't even turn an engine. In fact, Saddam Hussein buried them. He buried them because he was so scared of what might happen when we showed up. And you can show to the next slide. There's one of them being dug out at the base I was at. They buried MiG-25s, and now this icon of safety, this promise of a country that we, the empire will take care of you, now these things sit outside chow halls as static displays. So when I walk out of my chow hall, I see something like this. A vandalized hulk, a wreck, a vestige of a promise that an empire could not produce. Percy Shelley wrote a poem he entitled Ozymandias, and he kind of tells the story this way. He writes it, and it's in your, it's in your bulletin. You can read it at your leisure. But the poem is about a traveler that, uh, that he meets who comes from a distant land, and this traveler comes across a statue, this mighty statue that is old and ancient. And the statue, all that's left on the pedestal of the statue are two pieces of a leg, two columns. And around the statue is the debris of this ancient structure, this, what used to be this, what the poem calls a shattered visage of what was once this great statue of this mighty leader. And this is the message that's on the pedestal of this statue, this wreck in the sand. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty in despair. Nothing besides remains. Round the decay of the colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch away. The MiG-25 is nothing more than the wreck of Ozymandias. Now this morning when we read about Babel, I'm going to suggest to you that Shelley's description of what I just showed you is Ozymandias, and God's description of what I just showed you is entitled Babel. And so if you would, open your Bibles to Genesis 11. We're going to investigate and we're going to seek Scripture to see what does it say about our endeavor to preserve our own safety. What does it say to us about our, us fixing our hopes on mankind, us trusting in a government or a system or a flag, or a memory, or a promise that comes from man. That's what Genesis 11 is about. And I'll begin reading in verse 1, and I'll read the first nine verses. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found the plain of Shinar, and they settled there. 
They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower and the men that were building. And the Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from all over the earth and they stopped building the city. This is why it is called Babel because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the earth. Now, Babel in Hebrew sounds strikingly like confusion. That's why he says that's why they call it Babel. It was a common taunt among the Jews when they were exiles in Babylon, because Babylon, Babel means gate of God. So the Babylonians would say, it's gate of God, and the the Jews would go, it means confusion. And I can imagine this like pep rally, gate of God, confusion. But there's this idea that, uh, that's being portrayed here that Babel means confusion. And as we try to unlock the significance of this, the first question I think we should ask ourselves this morning is, what did the people do wrong? I mean, surely you're allowed to build bricks. Surely you're allowed to settle in Shinar. Is it the city? Is it the tower? What was their sin? What did they do wrong? By the way, this is my VBS advertisement. <laughs> so I'm going to drink it even if I'm not thirsty. It's like my, uh, my hook. Well, here's what I was led to understand as a boy. When I opened my little picture Bible up of Babel, I'm sure that many of you have had the similar experience. I would see towers like this. Right? This was the artist's rendition of the story. It's a completely tower-centric story to the artist. Even your Bible, if it has a title, it's probably entitled The Tower of Babel. It probably says that. And with this image, it's these spiraling coils that like baffle the imagination of even modern constructive ability, right? No civil engineer would, would bid that. You know? And, and imagine trying to get to the top floor, they have no elevator. They gotta go around and around. You know, but this this idea. Of, this, of mankind somehow gathering in Shinar and all getting together and saying, here's an idea. How about we invade heaven? And we'll build this tall building and we'll climb to the top and the elevator doors are open and, you know, ding, heaven. You know, and then our soldiers will pour out into the pearly gates with our swords and our spears and we will show God who we are. That's the, that is the essence of your children's stories. Is these tall, like for some reason they wanted to go to this novel experience of building at Sour and seeing if they could get to heaven. Now, despite the fact that that is like completely mindless of Middle Eastern ancient ar- ar- architecture, right? Probably it looks more like a pyramid or what some of you know as a ziggurat. Despite that fact, I think it's silliness. I mean, even as a kid, I found myself going, what? Build a tower to hell? Come on. I mean, really, if I can't fool an eight-year-old because I wasn't fooled as an eight-year-old, am I really supposed to think that the height of civilization at the time, right? They, these people of one common tongue, they gather and shine on, and they say, let's build. Do I really 
expect to believe that they sat down and said, I have an idea. Let's see if we can reach heaven. Let's start building. See what happens. I mean, that makes us kind of feel like this story is irrelevant. It allows the church to kind of go, silly Babylonians with their neat tricks. But there's something different. And and the, the first cue that it's different or that that's not accurate is the fact that God takes their experiment seriously. He looks at it and he goes, huh, if I let them do this, there'll be trouble. He says, in fact, if I let them continue in this endeavor, there will be nothing that they cannot do. That's what the Lord says. It makes me think that they weren't trying to reach heaven, that their sin was something else indeed. So let me reread verses 3 and 4. We'll read and we'll, and, and we'll examine more closely what the sin may be. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar, which, by the way, is consistent with uh, the Middle Eastern archaeological record. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heaven so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the earth. Make a name for ourselves so that we, we may not be scattered over the face of the earth. The people of Shinar building this city, the unique attribute what's going on here is there is this solidarity among mankind. In a weird way, all of mankind is cooperating. Something that you or I have never seen is this solidarity of humanity that's all working towards this goal. They're working and they're gathering behind a cause And they have this belief that if mankind works hard enough, if we get along well enough, if we focus and rally behind the flagpole just good enough, there's nothing we can't do. That's what's happening here. There's this solidarity, there's this unanimity that's going on, and God sees it and is concerned. And this is the thrust of what they're trying to do. They say, we'll make a name for ourselves and we'll prevent ourselves from being scattered. Ultimately, what the people of Shinar are saying is, is we will immortalize ourselves. That this city with its mighty walls, that this tower that reaches to heaven will be a monument to our immortality. That we will make a name that will be everlasting. That people will forever fear the mighty man of Shinar. That's what's going on. That's what God sees. It is an act of self-worship. That is the sin of Babel. It's the same sin that occurred at the tree. Remember the temptation of the serpent? Take the fruit and you will be as God. That's the sin of Babel. It's the same sin that occurred with Cain and Abel. Cain refused to worship God and instead took the power of life and death in his own hands. He behaved as God. The sin of Babel is looking inward for the answer. And you don't need to build a high tower to assault heaven on that one. You can do it right here in your seat or in your daily life or in our comings and our goings. We don't have to build a high tower to express to the Lord that we will take care of ourselves. And while this is a general story about a general people group, there is this personal truth that we should be mindful of, particularly in our standing in society. Because by and large, we are people who are pretty good at securing areas and aspects of our life. We make, by and large, just enough money to secure retirement. 
or to have health care or to secure education. And so in our lives, we have many places that through our labor, we have secured and we can kind of close them off. And every time the Lord knocks on the door, we can kind of say, I don't want to open that up to the Lord. I've worked way too hard to let the Lord in on that area of my life and change things. And I caution you this morning. I would just make you ask yourself, how mobile are you when the Lord calls? If you're so set on creating your own sense of security, if you're so set on settling down somewhere, spiritually, physically, economically, what happens when the Lord comes along and says, I have a plan for your life and it looks a little bit different? No matter how good that plan is, you're not going to want to hear it. No matter how rich that plan is, no matter where he's calling you, you're going to say, I have to let go of this myth of security. This lie of security that has been provided for me. I see that sometimes in the minds. I wouldn't consider myself a world traveler. I usually fly from one barbed wire fence to the other. But I do see a sense where people in America feel very safe in America. And when I tell them I'm going to Iraq or Kuwait, they think that there's this outside of our walls is this great danger. And I'd say, you know what? Last I studied, every human on the earth dies. It's just a matter of when. The danger is equivalent. Hobbes in his secular humanism said the great equality of all mankind is the quality of fear. He says, person who can master fear can master other people. Because all of us are scared of death. In fact, I wonder if the fear of death is even greater in America because we're constantly told that we can avoid it in simple ways. And then we meet it when it's finally unavoidable. There is no security within these walls. That's the sin and the lie of Babel. But there is this truth that's bigger than just a personal message. So I can tell you, uproot your life. Be willing to move. Be subject to the Lord's call. Listen to Him. Submit to Him for your hope. Submit to Him for your security. But there's this greater principle, and the way that the, the account of Babel is being preached is being preached to people, not to a person. So, so far in Genesis 4-11, through 11, we've seen personal accounts after personal accounts. All four to five stories, depending on how you count them, have to do with personal. So the first account is God's story about how God made everything. The second account is God's story about how Adam and Eve fell. Then there's God's story of how Cain fell. And then he talks about Lamech a little bit. And then there's God's story about how God saved Noah. But they're all personal accounts. Adam, Eve, Cain, Noah. And then we get to this story, and it's Babel. It's a people group. In fact, it represents all of humanity. And the suggestion I would say this morning is as a people group, even more broadly than as a church, as a large people group, where do we secure our hope? When people promise us things like bright futures, are we so foolish as to believe that they have that in their hands? I would caution you against that. I would caution you to question the systems that make the biggest promises. I would caution you to question governments and ideologies, even if they're our own, even if they dress in our colors, that promises things that they have never delivered. Because it's out of their power. It isn't out of their desire. It is out of their power. God and God alone secures our security. And we are called as a people to seek security from God and from God alone. And if you don't, you will always be disappointed at some point.
And to seek security from something other than God is the sin of battle. So this morning I'd say, who is your king? For whom are you laboring? In whom are you placing your trust? This is what King David says. King David writes it in a song. He called the song Psalm 2. And he says this, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand against the ruler, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. When we do not accept the Lord's security, we assault heaven. When we refuse to worship, we assault heaven. And this is how the Lord responds. I read 5 through 8 of chapter 11. God responds this way to the sin. God sees it. He says, But the Lord came down to the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, If there's one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. Now, first of all, the ir- there's irony in this passage that these people are building this mighty tower that reaches to the heavens, and the first thing God says is, huh, let's go down and check it out. As though it's like way down there. In the Hebrew, the irony exists even in the Hebrew, of this kind of idea that the biggest thing that we can do, God's still going, you know, I can't really see it from up here. I mean, if I squint, if I really squint and the sun's out of the way, I can barely make it out. So let's go down. Let's go down and see what these people are doing. I mean, so there's irony in that, and there's majesty in that, that God's always mindful of his position. But here's the deal. God expresses concern, doesn't he? He sees it, and he says this. He says, huh, these people can do. They can build. That's kind of how the Lord says it, right? Look what they're doing. He says, if I allow this to continue, there's nothing they can't do. And what you see is this God is not concerned about God. God isn't concerned about, wow, this tower may actually reach heaven, and then I'm in trouble. God's biggest concern, God is concerned and worried about man. Because he's thinking, if they are allowed to achieve what their ends are, if they are allowed to make a name for themselves, if they are allowed to say these mighty walls will preserve us forever, that through our endeavor, through our work of our hands, we have achieved immortality, God's concern is, then they will no longer be able to hear my voice. What would they listen up for? There's no desire. When people would come, if they could say when people enter the mighty land of Shinar, they see our tower off on the horizon looming over them to show our supremacy and our dominance. Who would go against that? If that's how these people behaved, the Lord is saying, wow, what, what could I say that would entice them? What could I say that would offer them? They have no need. They see no, no lack of security. There's nothing in their life that's making them ask. They're looking into the answer, and God says, and they'll satisfy it with their inward looking because it's solidarity of mankind. Mankind is created and gifted. You and I are builders. We're thinkers. We're divisors. We're engineers. We solve problems and we ask questions. And the message this morning is not don't build. The message isn't don't build bricks or don't build cities or don't build towers. The message this morning is is on who are those towers and buildings founded? 
When you build these towers, are they the, the anchor of your hope and your security? When you do these things in your life, are they monuments to your achievement? Or are you mindful that they belong to God and that God is the creator of everything? That's God's concern. That if I let them succeed, they will never look to me again. And that's what's interesting about the judgment. So you'd expect if this was some great sin, there'd be some radical judgment. We just got off of the, the flood, right? I mean, the Lord is capable of sending lightning bolts, hail. What does he do? He confuses their tongues. I mean, that's not even as bad as tear gas. I mean, there's this, there's this mercy and the punishment. God could have done so much more, but what God is trying to do is solve the problem. And the problem is, is that mankind, you and I, place our hope in mankind. That's our habitual problem. That we would rather believe the promises of people than the promises of God. And so you know what God does? God says, I will make their differences stand out more than their similarities. And then they will never trust one another. And they'll scatter. And that's the world that you and I live in, right? We live in a world where we spend 90% of our national defense budget worrying about other people. Like, gone is the solidarity of mankind. Gone is, you know, where everybody gets on a hill with a, what, a, what was it, Pepsi-Cola? I like to, do you remember that song? Coke? Where we all sing together in perfect harmony? That will never happen. That will never happen. They probably had to work hard to pay the 60 people to get on that hill when they made that commercial. And I bet you they argued. I'm just guessing that somebody stepped on someone's foot. There will never be the kind of solidarity that occurred here at Babel because God has confused it so that when it's time for you to look for security, maybe, just maybe, you'll think of God first. Maybe, just maybe, you won't trust the promises that mankind's systems and governments offer. Maybe you'll hear the Lord. We live in this aftermath of Babel. That's the world we live in. We live in a world that people groups are frustrated by one another. We compete we strive. I, I fancy every time the Olympics comes around, there's always some commentator that's going to talk about how the Olympics is some great place of cooperation and making friends. Ha! Well, the United States goes to win. During the Cold War, the ice hockey rink was the battlefield. It was the ultimate battlefield. It was battle. We don't go to the Olympics to make friends. Now, maybe the athletes do, but I don't watch it to make friends. I watch it to see gold medals. And there better be some. Right? Because mankind is a competitive nature. We, we, we flourish when it, there's a struggle. And God, in, in all this struggle, in this lack of security, in us constantly feeling, is there hope in mankind? Hopefully we hear God's words telling us to look to him. As we conclude this morning, there's, there's about four or five stories. I've mentioned them earlier. About four or five stories in Genesis 4 through 11 that are, are even worth talking about. So we have God's creation. We have Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah, and Babel. And in all five of these, or at least not counting creation, in the other ones, the message is clear that you and I and all of mankind are wandering people. That you or I left left alone from the grace of God, will move east. We will migrate from the Lord. We will gravitate to ourselves away from God. And we will seek our own ends. 
we will worship ourselves and we will not worship God. That is the message of Genesis 4 to 11. Genesis 4 to 11 is we are fatally flawed. We stray again and again and again. And there is no simple cure. We stray. And so as I end this series at Genesis 11, I feel this, like I'm leaving it on this note of desolation. And I feel it, it's it's a sensible break. I've got to stop preaching at Genesis 11 because it just makes sense. And we'll pick it up next year. But I I still feel like I would be mistaken with you if I didn't let you know or encourage you that that's not the whole story. Because if you go one page farther to Genesis 12, it starts like this. It says, And God called Abram, and he said to Abraham, Come west where I am. So all this time, we've been, we've been speaking and looking at a world that is moving east. It's moving away. It's migrating from the Lord. And God shows up in Genesis 12 and begins a work of bringing mankind west. God says to, to Abram, I have promises for you. God says to Abram, if you come west, I will make your name great. No more of this you making your name great. I will make your name great. I will make you a great people, and I will bless the entire world through you. And to me, it opens up this epic idea of what Christ means when he speaks of the way and the path. When Christ says, I am the way, I think he is a a path westward back to the promised land that you and I walk on. I think when Christ talks about two roads in life, when he says there's this road that leads to destruction that's wide and well-paved and easy to travel, I think that is an eastbound highway. And when God says there is a tight, narrow path to walk, That is the way west that Abram walked and that we're called to to travel on as well. And I pray this morning that you and I would see ourselves as travelers and not settlers. I pray today that you and I would see, be ready when God calls, because it is not, for the Christian, it is not if God is going to call you. It is when God calls, will you be ready to surrender over what he's asking for? Will you be ready to move west when he calls you? Because Abraham did and Christ did, and Christ is calling us. I'm going to end this morning in Acts, Acts chapter 4. I'm going to pick up this account. Peter and John just got their hands slapped and thrown in prison for preaching the gospel. The Sanhedrin and the tribes and the Pharisees, they told Peter and John, they said, stop preaching the gospel. It makes us uncomfortable. It threatens the peace. We don't like it. So they threw Peter and John in jail for a little while. They couldn't keep them there any longer because it was clear that they were healing people, so they let them out, and they kind of shook their finger at them. And Peter and John walk away, and this is what they do. Do they submit to this system that's telling them this is what safety is? No, this is what they do. When they, they unreleased, Peter and John went back to their own people, and they reported all what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they had heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. And this is what they say. Sovereign Lord, they said. You made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. They go right back to Genesis and they say, Are we to submit to Herod and Pontius Pilate when God, the creator of heaven and earth, says this through his father David or his son David? He says, and this is David quoting Psalm 2, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. 
And then they continue. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand and heal and perform miracles and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. This morning, we're not called to be silent in a system that says, play it safe. Be quiet, and we'll take care of you. Trust in our education system. Trust in the the secular industry, what it's going to offer you, the ideas, the concepts. We are called to let that go and to preach the word of Christ boldly. And you cannot do that if you're settled in Babel. And you certainly can't do it if your hope is in this world. Amen. We're approaching now our time of communion. I would encourage you this morning as we approach this time to see it as a time to meet with the Lord, to return to Christ. Because we drift. Even believers drift. We drift from the Lord. So I would encourage you to seek to be right with God, to return to seek union with Him, to find peace and security in Him, to make Christ the center of our lives.